Hi, I'm Gavin Givanoni, Professor of Neurology at Bath Sunder London. I'm doing this MS Selfie podcast in relation to an email I received from somebody with MS who lives in North America. He was diagnosed with MS in late 2018 and started on ocrelizumab and anti-CD20 therapy soon after diagnosis. He tells me he's now 53, so he was probably uh, 48 when he started ocrelizumab, and he's quite concerned about staying on ocrelizumab. Uh, the reason being his immunoglobulin levels have dropped, so he's become hypogammaglobulinemic, which potentially puts him at risk of infections, and his neurologist has suggested that he switch therapies. However, because he's done so well on ocrelizumab, in other words, he has had no relapses and his MRI has been quiet, in other words, no new lesions, he's a little bit reluctant to switch from a successful therapy and he's asking me what I would recommend. I mean, this is a very common question and uh, at our center at the moment, we're not doing anything with these types of patients. We're just leaving them on ocrelizumab because not everybody who's hypergammaglobulinemic gets infections. And some people with normal immunoglobulin levels get infections. So it's not that predictive of uh, infections. And we really only de-risk them once they've had a serious infection. Um, also, within the NHS, we don't treat so-called anti-CD20-induced hypergammaglobulinemia. And the reason being that the immunoglobulin therapies are very expensive. So this is replacement therapy. And it's currently rationed in the NHS. And there's a traffic light system about which diseases we can treat with intravenous immunoglobulin, which we can't. And to be honest with you, anti-CD20 induced hypergammaglobulinemia isn't on the green or even the amber light system. Saying this though, in countries other than the UK or the NHS, immunologists are proactively managing hypergammaglobulinemia with immunoglobulin replacement therapy. So I think you shouldn't just assume that uh, it's not treatable. Another way you can do is if people get infections, you can put people on prophylactic antibiotics. And a lot of immunologists, if somebody's had a serious infection and they need to stay on an anti-CD20 therapy, go on to prophylactic antibiotics, similar to what happens with patients who've had splenectomy. The main bacteria that cause infections are the so-called encapsulated bacteria, uh, pneumococcus causing pneumococcal pneumonia, meningococcus causing meningitis, um, haemophilus influenza, klebsiella, and some of those other types of infections. And these can be prevented by putting people on prophylactic uh, antibiotics. I think this case illustrates, though, that this is a emerging issue. Um, if somebody with MS is worried that they are chronically immunosuppressed, and this uh, has arisen mainly because of the blunted antibody responses to vaccines, and they are worried themselves and want to de-risk then we say, yes, I'm not going to stop somebody switching therapies uh, because that's not our policy. And um, our, our um, current current strategy, if they want to stay on a high-efficacy therapy, is to switch them to cladribine, simply because cladribine does not leave people chronically immunosuppressed. Uh, or we de-escalate de them onto a immunomodulatory therapy not associated with immunosuppression. And the ones that are available are teriflunamide, interferon beta or glutaram acetate. Now, I personally prefer uh, teriflunamide because it's anti-EBV and it. Uh, I have this hypothesis that if you stop an anti-CD20 therapy and you allow your B cells to reconstitute, 
um, <clears throat> in the presence of teriflunomide, which happens also to be an antiviral and targets EBV, you then stop your new B cells, the ones that are coming back from being reinfected with EBV, and hopefully that'll keep you in long-term remission. And the reason why I say this is because I actually think that EBV is driving MS disease activity. So the cycling from latent to lytic infection is the pathological driver of MS disease activity. Now, how that is happening, I don't know. And that's why we have a whole program of clinical trials targeting EBV to test this hypothesis. So it's not fact. This is an hypothesis. In other words, it's a theory. So please don't assume that this is uh, the way we treat MS at the moment. But it is quite logical, um, particularly in older patients who are getting immune senescence. In other words, the immune systems are aging to actually think about de-risking chronic anti-CD20 therapy. Anyway, <clears throat> this case also illustrates to me that we do need to move beyond the B cell. And we have to think about how we manage people going forward who are on long-term anti-CD20 therapies. And I must admit, having returned from the American Academy, I was uh, quite shocked. I shouldn't say shocked. I should have expected it. How many people are on anti-CD20 therapy? It's now become the gold standard treatment option for MS. You know, a lot of people are going on to it first line. And even people who are switching because they've failed or a previous treatment has failed them are going on to anti-CD20 therapy. So we're seeing a massive increase in the proportion of people on a disease-modifying therapy being on an anti-CD20 therapy. And the majority, and I'm talking about 80-plus percent, maybe even 90-plus percent, when you re-baseline at six months with a new MRI scan and you monitor annually, are rendered free of inflammatory disease activity. These people are not having relapses and no new T2 lesions. So the average MSologist, MS expert, is saying, I've, I've achieved my goal, I've got these patients neither, and my job is done, and I think this is a slam dunk, but it's not a slam dunk. Uh, and there are lots of questions we have um, that should that should make us think about the strategy. Um, so clearly there's the question around long-term safety, and uh, I go into it in actual in the email and on the website in text about the long-term safety and I just personally don't think we're going to be able to leave people indefinitely on an anti-CD20 therapy and this is why I'm making the case for the maintenance induction strategy or induction maintenance strategy where we use an anti-CD20 therapy for example two years and then uh, maintain them on a much safer non-immunosuppressive drug like teriflunomide and that's the so-called iTERI study and if you want more information I've got a link in the newsletter where I go into that in much more detail. The other questions about CNS resident B cells and plasma cells, I do think we need to start thinking about treatments that go into the brain and spinal cord to clear the brain and spinal cord of these pathogenic B cells and plasma cells that are making immunoglobulin that are part of the smoldering MS pathology. And I don't think the current uh, anti-CD20 therapies are doing that because they don't cross very well into the central nervous system. And so this is why we need to explore other strategies. And that's one of the rationales for doing higher dose ocaluzumab to try and get more antibody into the brain to clear the B-cell compartment centrally. And I've also got a link in the newsletter to uh, a previous newsletter I wrote where I go into the dosing of anti-CD20 therapies. The next question is about smoldering MS. Um, you know, do we need to go beyond no evident inflammatory disease activity? And I make the point, yes, we do. And I personally think 
relapses and MRI activity are not MS. We know that if you do serial MRI studies, say weekly or monthly, and you look at an area of the brain where a GAD-enhancing lesion is destined to occur, there are changes occurring in that area of the brain long before you get a, a GAD-enhancing lesion. And so that GAD-limb-enhancing lesion or that new lesion is actually occurring in response to something else that's happening in the tissue. And this is another reason why I don't think uh, MRI and relapses are MS. They're in response to what's causing MS. Um, and they also predict outcome very poorly. So there's a whole lot of medical philosophical arguments why relapses and MRI activity are not MS. And I also refer you to a, uh, a, a previous newsletter where I go into this in much more detail. And I use the analogy of leprosy, how the phenotype, what you see clinically in people who are infected with the bacterium that causes leprosy, uh, differs based on how much uh, how inf how how, the, how your immune system responds to the bacteria. So yes, no, being no evident inflammatory activity is not good enough. We need to go beyond that. Then the question is, what about T cells? Um, you know, are T cells important? And I make the point that when you actually do a hierarchy of therapies in terms of their effectiveness, at the top of the uh, top of the tree or top of the ladder are Alemtuzumab, uh, Lemtrada, and autologous hemopoietic stem cell transplant, AHSCT. And what differentiates these two very powerful immune reconstitution therapies from the others is that they not only work on B cells, but also they're profoundly T cell depleting. And so is it the T cell depletion that's important? Uh, and the reason why I think these treatments are more effective is because they have a, a major impact on progressive brain volume loss, most people post alemtuzumab or HSET um, um, stop losing brain volume uh, at an accelerated rate and they go into the normal range. And the other thing that differentiates them is the ability to recover function. So the what we would call sustained disability improvement is so much higher on these two treatments than, say, the anti-CD20 therapy. So there's something different about these two immune reconstitution therapies, and I think it's the T-cells. And uh, there's a lot of other anecdotal evidence why T-cells are important to MS. When you look at the brains of people who die of MS or you look at biopsies from MS lesions, they're full of T-cells, both CD4 and CD8. But CD8, the so-called cytotoxic T-lymphocytes, are the cells that predominate in the tissue. So T-cells are critical for the MS lesion. Uh, and also there's a big very potent link between the so-called MHC and multiple sclerosis. And MHC, the major histocompatibility complex, or the HLA, the human leukocyte antigens, these are the proteins that are on the surface of antigen-presenting cells that present antigen. So we think the MHC association is probably linked to antigen presentation. And if you've got antigen presentation, there's a T-cell on the other side of it. So T-cells are, I think, critical in the pathogenesis of MS. And even when you do genomic studies and you do network analysis and look at the inflammatory pathways that are enriched for variants in the genome that put you at a higher risk of MS, a lot of these pathways involve T-cells and T-cell biology. So we can't get away from the genomics. Uh, and in a, uh, a, a pathway or network analysis uh, our group did, um, a major node, a central node, was the so-called CD40 and its binding partner, CD40 ligand. And this is a really important pathway, these two molecules, because they are the so-called co-stimulatory signals um, that, that in addition to the T-cell receptor signaling, 
okay, cause a T cell to become activated and cause become pro-inflammatory. And so um, I personally think the CD40, CD40 ligand is telling pathway is really critical in MS. And I go on to tell you that we're not ignoring the T cell. Uh, there is an ongoing trial testing an anti-CD40 ligand monoclonal antibody in MS. And I would not be surprised based on the biology if this is a very effective treatment for MS. Uh, and that um, the other good thing about CD40, CD40 ligand is that if you block it and you still have signaling via the MHC T cell receptor, that becomes a tolerogenic. It causes tolerance. So in other words, it switches off those T cells. So there is this theoretical um, advantage of by blocking co-stimulation, not only are you switching off MS, but you're tolerizing. In other words, you're getting rid of the autoimmunity. And so I'm excited about the anti-CD40 ligand uh, clinical trial um, for two reasons. It's targeting T cells, in other words, it's going beyond B cells. And let me tell you, the CD40, CD40 ligand is also important in B cell, T cell interactions. So B cells can also work as antigen presenting cells and if they present an antigen uh, to the T cell they also stimulate the T cell by their CD40 CD40 ligand so this particular pathway not only targets T cells B cells but also targets innate immune cells other professional antigen presenting cells like dendritic cells uh, macrophages and microglia so all very exciting so let's wait for those trial results to come out and if positive uh, we have another pathway or another class of agent that will need to go forward uh, in MS. So I am convinced that we need to go beyond the B cell and back to the drawing board and think about creative ways of combining both B cell depletion and anti-T cell therapies uh, into one. And I think only then will we be able to tackle smoldering MS. Another question I'm often asked is, can B cell therapies cure MS? And I th at, at the moment I say no, and I think this is based on limited data um, around the current anti-CD20 therapies. And I think it's the observation that a significant proportion of people on anti-CD20 therapies, although they are free of disease activity in, in the sense that there's no relapses and MRI activity, still go on to have what I call smoldering MS-associated worsening or SOAR, S-A-W. Uh, and so we need to actually think about that and how, and how do we add on therapies to, to prevent SOAR. Um, <clears throat> I suppose I could argue that uh, if EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, is driving MS disease activity, then we probably need B-cell therapies that target EBV and get into the central nervous system. And this is why um, we are, as a MS community, developing brutine tyrosine kinase or BTK inhibitors. So BTK is a really important uh, signaling molecule below the B-cell receptor, and it activates B-cells. Um, and by inhibiting BTK, you actually inhibit B-cell activation. But BTK is also an important pro-survival signal, keeps the B-cell alive in, that are EBV infected with, 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 with latent infection. So one of the membrane proteins that EBV makes is called latent membrane protein 2 or LMP2. And this, this bypasses the B-cell receptor and stimulates BTK and signals via brutin tyrosine kinase. So if you inhibit brutin tyrosine kinase, you remove that so-called pro-survival signal for that B cell, and those cells may be susceptible to die. And there is some evidence from the first generation of BTK inhibitors that they work against Epstein-Barr virus, and I would not be surprised if the class is effective against EBV. So I'm actually going to be a BTK inhibitor optimist, and I predict that the 
centrally acting ones, particularly the ones that get into the brain and spinal cord in high concentrations and are able to inhibit BTK in the brain, may be able to target those EBV-infected B cells that are, are, are likely to be present in the brain. And so I suspect and I predict that BTK inhibitors is going to be another class of therapy that dissociates uh, the impact of the therapy on inflammatory markers, relapses and MRI activity, and the so-called smoldering or end-organ markers. So I suspect the BDK inhibitors are going to be much more effective on slowing down disability progression and impacting on the biomarkers of smoldering MS, brain volume loss, slowly expanding lesions, these so-called rim lesions. Um, uh, and I think that uh, if I had to do a prediction, I suspect relative to teriflunamide, which is what most of them are getting compared to, they will reduce disability progression by close to 50%. I would say 45% would be my prediction with a range of 40 to 60%. Uh, and this is in comparison to ofatumumab that only achieved on average about a 30% reduction. So I think BTK inhibitors are going to be a, a cut above anti-CD20 therapies uh, in targeting uh, smoldering MS and the end organ damage component of multiple sclerosis. Uh, the current anti-CD20 therapies are mainly targeting peripheral inflammatory uh, reactions and not getting into the central nervous system in high enough concentration. So in summary then, uh, you know, I've used this case study to highlight why we as an MS community need to go beyond B-cell targeted therapies. It's not good enough to just be free of focal inflammatory events, relapses, MRI activity. We need to target the end organ and prevent smoldering disease. And for that, we need new drugs, new therapeutic strategies, uh, and, pretend, and almost certainly CNS penetrant, drugs that get into the brain and spinal cord. <clears throat> so my vision then is for, pe for people, for people with MS to be both NIDA, no evident inflammatory disease activity, and this new term I, I like to call NISO, no evident smoldering MS uh, associated worsening. Um, maybe I'm wrong, and I would appreciate your thoughts uh, about moving the treatment goalposts uh, beyond NIDA uh, and focusing on smoldering MS. And I'd also like to uh, get your get your uh, feedback on the on the term SAW, S-A-W. I like it because it rhymes with uh, raw relapse-associated worsening. But this term was used in a meeting uh, I was attending at the American Academy, and I actually clicked straight away raw and sore and so um and i think it's much better than pira because pira refers to relapses you know relapses only and it doesn't incorporate uh, um, a much broader definition anyway read the newsletter synthesize the information in the newsletter ask questions and we'll have a debate and discussion about this and please don't forget that i'm still trying to raise um, funds to support the associated MSLV website. And so if you haven't subscribed or become a paying subscriber uh, and you can afford to, please do. Um, you know, the more financially viable MSLV becomes, uh, the more I can support the website. And the website's really because the current MSLV format is not a very good format for finding information in a hurry. You know, once we transfer this information into a well-curated index on the on the website, newly diagnosed people, for example, can find the information very easily. And even if you want to go and find the information easily, you can go to that website and just 
one or two clicks you find the information. But again, don't feel obliged. If you don't feel these newsletters are worth paying for, that's fine. They are free and they will remain free um, for as long as I can make them free. Um, uh, the other option is to switch the funding model and just let paying subscribers, you know, you know, get the newsletters for um, six months via email. And then after six months, we open up the newsletters free, um, but only on the website. Anyway, enjoy and uh, don't feel shy. Uh, please come back. The more questions and discussion we have around this particular newsletter, the better. There are lots of very contentious uh, issues and a lot of theory in these newsletters. So some of you may find that they're a little bit over the top. Let's, let's address that uh, in the question time.